Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, everyone. Another episode of Better Words. Our last Actually, episode the final. of the season. I said like <laughs> another and then I was like, oh no, it's not just another. It's the final one for the season. Yeah. Um, we're so excited to bring you this interview because we had a lot of fun doing it. Um, before we get into it though, later on, while I remember, let me just say that there are a few instances where there's some noise in the background because our guest lives above a fire station. <laughs> so there's like one or two times where you can hear a siren. Um, there are a couple of times I was able to cut out, but just in case you think, what the hell is that? Yeah, start <laughs> looking is, out the window. It's not you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so very, very typical, like, New Yorker, what yeah. I would imagine it's like to live in New York. So just yeah. beware Sound of that. Sound everywhere. They fit in the apartments wherever they can. So they just keep <laughs> going higher above existing buildings. So pretty realistic, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Today, we are going to share a few recommendations with you, um, and we just had a little discussion before we started recording that mine's like quite a serious recommendation, so um, we thought we'd save Caitlin's lovely happy recommendation for last, that we can end on a high. <laughs> um, and my recommendation, just a quick little preview, is suitably Christmassy, so... I think oh, that would nice. be fun. But yeah, you go first, Michelle. What Yeah. What are you reading, watching? What are you telling us about today? Okay, so I did think, oh, maybe I should just do something Christmassy. But Jack and I watched this documentary last night, which I just feel like it's too important not to recommend, even though I don't know where, if you can see it in Australia. Okay. But if you're in the UK, go to BBC iPlayer and look up a documentary called Is This Coercive Control? And watch it with your friends, watch it with your parents, watch it with your partner. Have a discussion. It's really fascinating. So they get a group of guys and a group of girls and they show them a dr- dr- dramatised, dr- dramatic, they show them a drama. Dramatised? Um, I think dramatised. Yeah. 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 So they show them this drama of a couple and their relationship and how things unfold and they don't tell them like what the end result is going to be or anything. And at various points you see about 15 minutes of the drama and then they stop it and then they say to the guys, what do you think of his behaviour? What do you think of her behaviour? They do the same to the girls. They keep showing them segments and getting their reaction opinions change they get them to vote on it and this is an Irish drama um, or an Irish documentary because as we discussed with Louise O'Neill earlier this season coercive control is now a criminal offence in Ireland but I also found out it's um, been a criminal offence for about five years in England and Wales as well so it's only been a criminal offence in Ireland for about 
a year, which is why they've done the documentary, because they wanted to talk to young people especially and say, what do you understand about coercive control? What do you think makes this relationship abusive? And do you understand why you could bring a conviction for something? And it was just really fascinating to have this chat with Jack about it. Um, I mean, obviously... (laughs) just putting it out there, our relationship's pretty healthy. (laughs) Um, But I just was interested to get his opinion on, so I started watching it without him. And then I was like, no, I actually, I want to see what he says about certain things, things that I might consider a red flag if I was entering into a relationship, knowing what I know now. But that's stuff that I, as a 26 year old, kind of recognizes red flags now that when I was younger I might not have um and it's just very interesting and there were still people right up until the end who fundamentally disagreed about the behavior and then they're showing something right at the end which basically changes everyone's opinion it's amazing it's so well done the way they do it and they bring a lawyer in to explain it at the end so to prove coercive control um, in a criminal setting in Ireland and I assume in England as well you have to show that it's a pattern of behavior it's not just yeah. a one-off thing whereas you know if you were to um, I mean I only know Australian law here but if you were to ask for you know a um, domestic violence uh, restraining order or um, an intervention in that sense it doesn't ha- it can just be a one-off thing I believe um so you know it could be physical violence things like that but to, yeah. to prove really easier to, to prove which is why it would be different yeah like which is easier to prove issue, but then because it's people such a don't gray come area. forward yeah so it's, yeah. it's like it's easier to prove that if it's physical because you'd have the evidence but then most people don't come forward so it's quite mm. difficult but um in researching this article just to put it in the Australian context as well I just did a quick Google trying to find out if it was available in Australia, which I don't think it is. It only aired a few months ago in the UK. But um, I found a really good article that I'll link to from the conversation um, asking why isn't coercive control a crime across Australia? Because we know that um, those sorts of behaviours at first may not indicate that someone is capable of physical violence but what often happens is that pattern of behavior then if that person tries to leave a relationship that's when that can escalate and a lot of women have been killed um looking back at those patterns of behavior you can see those coercive control patterns and that's you know I was trying to explain that to Jack last night as well may have like evolved and escalated over time Um, Yeah. And also that like Jack and I were talking about this, this idea that, you know, someone could do that, get, get away with it for lack of a better word in one relationship and then escalate in another relationship. And that's, it's so difficult because then you, you can't like people have a right to privacy and not having their stuff broadcast, but it's just, it's so difficult. But um, basically it is recognized that if we can predict the behavior, we can prevent it. Right. So if we can predict potential violence and physical violence through um, coercive control behaviours, we can hopefully prevent more deaths in the future. Um, But what they were sort of talking about is all the issues that would be involved in making it a criminal offence in Australia 
partly because all our states and territories have their own criminal systems. So in Queensland, for example, we have a criminal code. um, So you could legislate that, but in other places it's based on like common law things. Um, So I'm going to link that article because it is, um, if anyone's not familiar with the conversation, it's like academia based. So it's by law professors. It's a very good explanation of why we don't have this in Australia and how we could potentially get it. But I just think, like I said, I wanted to do something light and fun and Christmassy, but I think it's too important not to talk about. And I think especially if you're in the UK and you, I mean, like I said, watch it with your friends, but also if you're a parent, like, and you've got teenage kids like watch it with your kids and talk about this behavior and whether they think this is acceptable because and have the conversations and educate yourself yeah yeah because some of the things in the relationship too like some people were saying well I've been in relationships where both of us have done that and I don't think it's wrong and then others were like no this is clearly abusive behavior and some people were like well I, I, I don't think that's abuse like that's a bit of a strong term um and I just think it's a very inter- it's interesting to watch their discussion, to react to that and to have yeah. that conversation. Um, obviously, if you're only just listening to us on this episode, go back and listen to our conversation with Louise O'Neill um, about her novel After the Silence, because while it is fictional, she did a lot of research um, with people uh, who had been in coercive control relationships part of the relationship in the book is based on coercive control and I think what's uh, clever from a writing perspective but really haunting as a reader is that you see the way that those actions um, we talk about one in the book that like she's basically getting trolled online so she says look can you please just filter out the trolling messages and that eventually becomes him controlling her phone and not so these things don't always start as a harmful thing and they don't always start as something that you think wow that's that's a red flag because you might actually ask them to do that but it develops into a pattern of behavior and so yeah it's the, the documentary if you're looking it up is called is this coercive control it was on BBC Three and it'll be on the iPlayer. If anyone finds it in Australia, um, then yeah, please watch it. Sounds yeah. so interesting. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully they show it on ABC, but I maybe they won't because it's not law in Australia. I don't know, but it's just a very important conversation to have and I thought especially timely recommendation considering we'd had that discussion with Louise about all of this and about Ireland in particular. So, um, yeah, that's my heavy recommendation for this week, but an important one. So cheer us up, Caitlin. Take us <laughs> out with the Christmas recommendation. Yes. I sometimes can't believe that we, how different our recommendations are and that we talk about, like we just move swiftly from this topic to this. And I know, I'm often that- the one with such a simple happy recommendation no but no but the thing is that I know that you would watch that documentary and we would discuss it you know it's not like like you you're like oh god I would never watch that it's way too heavy it's just (laughs) and 
I honestly, I really just wanted to do a really light recommendation today, but I just thought it was really important. And like, watch it with you, please, watch it with your partner. And I had such an interesting discussion. Jack and I kept pausing it and talking about it. And I just think it's so important. And I'm all for like open communication and stuff. And yeah, it's just it was really the behavior was insidious and I think a lot of people will be surprised at how things escalate and how things change because there is stuff that you think yeah that's probably not too bad or oh that's not well I've been in relationships like that before so you know yeah yeah, I'm sorry but yeah don't oh god no go for the light recommendation please I don't think anyone should judge you based on that and we have lots of in-depth conversations about lots of deep feminist things. So if anyone's judging you, they can just jump in a bin. <laughs> well, thank you, Michelle. Um, my very light, sugary Christmas recommendation is the Dash and Lily series on Netflix. Um, for anyone who has missed it or has no idea what I'm talking about, the Dash and Lily's Book of Dares is the first novel in there's three books now actually in this Dash and Lily series um, written by David Levithan and Rachel Conn um, who are you know YA legends with these like pairing <laughs> um, yeah. novels uh, yeah so the Dash and Lily's Book of Dares has been adapted into a Netflix TV show it's adorable it's Christmas in New York there's scenes at the Strange Bookstore, at the Rockefeller Christmas Tree, Times Square, Central Park. Oh, it's just so, so good. And I just was watching it and I was like, I want to be in New York for Christmas. But, of course, not even New Yorkers are really enjoying New York Christmas this year. So I think it was a great escape. Um and it's so fun. So the basic concept of the story is that Lily leaves a notebook in the bookshelves at the Strand bookstore. Dash finds it and they communicate through the notebook and leave each and leave it like all around New York, um, setting each other dares and like, you know, eventually meet. Adorable. Um, very, very cute. The TV show is very fun and has a cameo by the Jonas Brothers. <laughs> Just fun. randomly, which I love. Um, I love that they made it into a TV series as well and didn't just go for a movie. Yeah, it really, because I guess there's like a lot of different aspects to the storyline and it just gives them a bit of extra time to explore it. And also they can like do it again because there's three other books. So they can do seasons. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think that's great. I think that's really good because sometimes the movies feel a little bit rushed. And I think especially if you're switching point of view as well, which I know those co-written books often do have their point of view switches. Like it just quite well, actually the first, like the first two episodes in particular are called like one is called Dash and one is called Lily. And so, and then it kind of keeps swapping between them. So that format really allows for that. And I actually enjoyed the TV show so much and I hadn't actually read any of the Dash and Lily books, um, but I got them. I'm going to read them in December because they'll be, I've read um, David Levithan and Rachel Co. Uh, Con books before and I've, in like a day. So I know <laughs> they'll be quick and really fun to read. So hopefully I read all three in December and I have just started 
the first one. And I can already tell that the TV show is quite different. So it'll be interesting to see. I think, I mean, they always have to do this with adaptations, kind of clean up the story a bit and like, I don't know, condense it Mm. and adjust things. And also, I think the first book, I should have checked this. I don't know when the first book was originally published, but I think that they updated like a few tech things because it's about teenagers. 2010. 2010. There you go. I have just started reading it and there was already something, which I've already forgotten, that it just struck me as like slightly dated and that explains it. Ten years is a lot for teenagers and technology. Can you imagine if they had made it then? It would have been like Gossip Girl with the flip phones. And... I know, totally. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, that is hard. That is the hard thing about making a TV series or setting it in a particular time or making those references to specific pieces of technology. I mean, you could probably get away with an iPhone because that spans a lot of the 2000s and will probably continue Continue. for a bit longer. Um, You know, smartphone, things like that. But, yeah, like when you're talking about like the Motorola razors and flip phones and stuff like that, um, sort of dates it a little bit. 2008, isn't it? Yeah, it is. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Anyway, I think that's a lovely recommendation. It's a very, very fun, adorable show. I really enjoyed it. Sounds just like what I need. Thank you. That'd be really good. Yeah. Okay. Well, sit back and enjoy our final interview for the season. And we will be back in your feed for a new season in 2021. Yes, we will. Oh my God. I know. I can't believe it. So our guest today grew up outside Washington, D.C., graduated from Columbia University and worked in the tech industry prior to becoming a full-time writer, which, I mean, I think sounds more fun than being in the tech industry, but that's just me. He now lives in New York City and has published three books. He's joining us today to talk about his latest novel, his third novel, How It All Blew Up. Welcome to Better Words, Arvind Amadi. Hello, Caitlin and Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining you us. You already tell we're going to have so much fun. It's, it's going to be fun. great. <laughs> Let the fun begin. Yeah. So, yeah, congratulations on the novel. Thank you. Um, you know, it came out a little while ago, but I still feel so excited about it, um, especially because, I mean, this one was so much fun to write and to experience. I mean, I'll talk about it later, but it, it's largely rooted in my own experience in Italy. And so I'm just happy to get to keep it alive. Great. Yeah, it's our pleasure. I mean, it's it's a shame that it took us so long to to get you on the podcast, but <laughs> we are delighted to finish off the season with this story. Yeah. So to start us off, can you give us a quick blurb of How It All Blew Up? Yes. Uh, so How It All Blew Up is about an 18-year-old boy, Amir Azadi, who runs away to Italy and basically has this incredible life-changing summer adventure there. Um, he runs away because he is gay and Iranian and Muslim and doesn't think that he can come out to his traditional family. Um, And so he runs away to Italy and meets this group of Italians and Americans there um, who become like his fabulous queer family and help him 
not just accept but own who he is. Um, he, you know, spends late nights dancing on Italian rooftops with them, has amazing food, goes on dates in the Sistine Chapel. But that wonderful summer all comes to an abrupt end when his family finds him in Italy, takes him back to America, and they get into a big fight on the airplane. And so the story is actually told in interrogation rooms at JFK airport where Amir and his family have been detained and now they're being questioned separately and asked to explain their side of the story. So you meet him on page one inside this airport interrogation room. Which is just such an interesting setting and it's it's done so well. Like you said, the whole story is kind of in flashbacks as he's telling these officers his story. So how did you get to that setting and that structure? Yeah, um, so you know, I mentioned earlier, uh, the story is largely rooted in my own summer in Italy adventure where I was 25 and I just come out with my first book and I was working on my second and starting to kind of percolate an idea for my third. And uh, I decided to go to Italy because this was 2018. It was the year of Call Me By Your Name. It was the year of Master of None season two, when, if you might recall, Aziz goes to Italy. And so I, I remember just thinking like, oh yeah, let me do Italy because that is where my brown side and my gay side are meant to converge. It was like an Aziz Elio mashup that I didn't know I needed. Um, so... And you know, we could travel then as well. Like, yeah. I'll remember that day. Right. And travel was possible then. I think especially if you were a young 20 something year old, you know, uh, it, it was it was just like a thing that you would do. And so I did it. Um, uh, and I felt very lucky to be able to spend a summer there. Um, and even luckier that very early on, I stumbled into this group of people who um, really took me under their wing um, and just like showed me Italy, showed me Rome, um, and introduced me to a lot of queer culture that I'd never been familiar with, you know, growing up um, first in Northern Virginia, but even in New York, and so I had this coming of age summer, uh, but I didn't want to just tell another coming of age story in the traditional sense. Um, and it wasn't until the end of the summer when I got stopped at an airport um, and I got asked a bunch of questions about why I'd been in Italy for so long, who I was seeing, what I was doing there, what my intentions were, that I, you know, to this officer who I'd never met before, I started telling her about these friends that I had made, um, this fabulous group of queer men that I was hanging out with in Rome, you know, and the places where we hung out and the um, experiences that we'd had. And I realized that I was opening up more to this somewhat intimidating officer than I had to some of the people closest in my life, you know, the, some of the people um that i had known my whole life um and that i was really more comfortable kind of talking about this side of me this gay side of me to an interrogation officer um than to say my own family and so you know that was an interesting thought that i had after you know i think we talked for five or ten minutes it wasn't actually too long although it felt like forever and you know i i remember that didn't sit well with me that two things a i uh had said things to this person that i hadn't even said to like say my parents or my siblings, um, just specifics of my time in Italy. And also I didn't love that I was kind of using my gayness as a way to say like, oh, clearly, you know, to basically portray myself as not a threat, you know, um, because, you know, in my mind or when I was, when I was talking to her, I was kind of trying to say like, look, I'm not 
like those other Muslims or those other Middle Eastern people, those other people who might look like me, I'm actually gay. And that makes me less threatening. Um, I feel like was kind of the gist of me getting into those details of my summer. And so it's kind of, I had kind of created this like model minority image of myself. And so that's when I came up with the story of how it all blew up, which is Amir, this 18 year old boy who has an incredible summer adventure where he learns to marry these two sides of himself, his queerness and his culture and learns to be proud of it. But then abruptly finds himself in this tense situation where he's telling the story of his summer almost as a survival mechanism. You know, he's, he's telling it to prove that he is Westernized um, to shatter the stereotype that this officer might have of him. It's really amazing. So I hope you don't mind me asking this then, but, you know, why explore through fiction? Because, you know, it could, you've said that, you know, Amir is a very autobiographical character. There are bits that reflect your own life. So was there any time that you thought, well, maybe I could just explore it through like more of a memoir or, you know, something like that rather than, you know, a fictional novel? Why, why this format? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think fiction writers... It's hard to say because I think like part of why I write fiction in general is that I don't want to write memoir. I don't want to get too personal. I don't want to wear my heart on my sleeve. It it creates distance. Um, And I think because this is still something new to me, you know, opening up about my, you know, gay identity and my Iranian identity and my Muslim identity um, all in one story. um, I certainly wasn't ready to just, you know, talk about it in the context of my own experiences in real life and nonfiction, you know? So in that sense, like fiction is a blanket that keeps you safe. Um, And I've always liked that. And also I just think the story could be so much better. You don't have to stick to the facts. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Just like, I I never even, it's funny. I never, I never considered writing it as a memoir and maybe some of it, like I was saying, is that fear of getting too close to the heart of, bearing it all. Um, but also fiction just lets you do it better. You know, it, it becomes more, I think, narratively, yeah, it, it, it's just more narratively clean that way. I mean, I only ask because I'm the complete opposite in that, you know, I'm a journalist and I sort of write a lot of nonfiction things as a way of working out my feelings sometimes. Mm. So like the thought of writing fiction scares me because I'm like, oh my God, I've got to make up all these characters. But like, I find nonfiction so much easier to write when I can just mine other people's life experience. Oh yeah. <laughs> and and put a narrative to it. Like that's what I love doing. Um, obviously with their consent, I'm not to say, but you know, like the fact right. is if you sit down and if you were to tell me all of that, I could weave it into a narrative. But I find it so much scarier to like come up with that by myself because then I'm thinking, oh, this sounds too contrived. Oh, this sounds like no one's going to believe this or whatever. Like it's I find it so much harder. So I just think that's amazing that, you know, of course, if you're the opposite and you already write fiction, that's your comfort zone and your zone of genius. And but yeah, I just thought it's it's an interesting question to ask. And have yeah. a I mean, look, real life doesn't make sense. I, I, <laughs> in my opinion, real life doesn't make sense. It doesn't have any narrative cohesion um, and fiction makes it make sense. And that's what I love about fiction. Um, so maybe, I mean, maybe that's the real fear 
that I feel in bearing it all. It's not that I'm necessarily afraid to be candid and honest. It's just, I don't have my shit figured out and fiction (laughs) helps me get my shit figured out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, though, it's interesting that you feel like fiction isn't quite bearing everything because I've also heard a couple of writers who say that, you know, who maybe wrote nonfiction first and then said, actually, their fiction feels a lot more personal than their nonfiction. And people are always trying to guess at what's real and what what isn't. Now, obviously, we've just asked you all of that and you've just explained the bits that were inspired and stuff like that. But did you find that as well, like with your last um, few books too, were people like trying to work out which bits were you and which bits weren't? Or is it really just this novel? Much more so with my first book. I mean, Down and Across is another coming of age runaway story about an Iranian American kid. And so... They're like, it must be you. <laughs> yeah, people were definitely trying to surmise like which parts were me, which parts were them. I mean, I had friends and family ask if they had inspired a character. No one really did that with my second book. I think it's because it was genre. It was a near futuristic sci-fi thrillery thing, um, which is funny because it did have some personal elements in there. Um, but I guess because it was just so far from both our world and the character was so far from me, in that she was a girl, that people just assumed that I had made it all up. And for the most part, I did. I mean, I always say that Down and Across was the book of my heart and Girl Gone Viral was the book of my imagination. Um, but, you know, imagination does not exist in a vacuum. A lot of the things that you imagine are informed by your emotional experiences. So those were still there in Girl Gone Viral. No one ever asks, which I don't mind. <laughs> that is so funny, isn't it? That classic trick, it's like, Oh, but the character is a girl, so never mind. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Can't <laughs> I can't have anything in common with her. No, no, not at all. No common life experiences there yeah. at all, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Although there is the obvious, there is the very obvious thread of, you know, she lives in Silicon Valley and goes to a techie high school. And I worked in tech and went to a high school like that. And I guess no one really wants to sort of ask about an industry right? Or draw lines connecting you to like tech or an industry. I think if they want a personal connection or want to dive into what parts were inspired by your life, they want it to be something sexier, like sexuality, mental health. Um, yeah. All the juicy stuff. Yeah. yeah. No one cares that I used to work on a data team and then Opal Hopper and Girl Gone Viral hacks a ton of data, you know? Yeah. It's like <laughs> data. Mm, meh. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on. We'll just sign away everything to Facebook to get a free account. <laughs> it, um, it really, it really is like how he just like check the box and click accept on everything, and it's like, oh, just signed away my entire life. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I just signed up for like three different grocery stores today to try and see if I could even book an online delivery slot, and then I was like, I'm too lazy to go back and cancel those accounts now. Oh, I'm just, I guess it's just going to be there now. Yeah, like everyone can just have my data. I'm too lazy to protect it. (laughs) On to a more serious note, though. Um, You know, obviously you've said in this and you also mentioned in the author's note at the back of the book that this is the most personal book you've written, even if there are parts of yourself reflected in your other novels. Um, What were some of the challenges you faced in sharing that more personal story and and doing something that's so close to your own experiences? Well, it's it's certainly draining, Um, you know, not as much in the writing process, because I think the writing process is so cathartic, right? Like that 
is what makes it all worth it as well as the response from readers but it's in the talking about it and it almost feels like you're pimping out your pain to make the same points over and over again um to talk about the ways that you've struggled the ways you've been marginalized with regards to your Sorry, identity over and over. <laughs> guess, <laughs> yeah what i'm trying to say is can we end this podcast early uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no no i totally understand though it is uh, yeah. that's the the whole thing isn't it you can't like bring awareness of something without like you said feeling like you're playing on that and exploiting yeah, it in a way no it's it's constantly reminding yourself of the importance of talking about how this is so personal and what that has meant to write something so personal and how it's freed me up in so many other parts of my life i mean my life is so much better not just because i had that summer in italy where I met, you know, the real life versions of Jahan and Neil, these two best friends that Amir makes over there who help him explore his queer and Iranian identity, but also because I wrote about it and now I get to talk about it and spread that gospel of these wonderful people of the queer family that everyone deserves, of the found family and real family that everyone deserves. So, I mean, overall, it's been an incredible experience. And yeah, sure, I mean, like, it gets a little tiring to have to kind of talk about how you are marginalized or you've struggled or you've just spent your whole life reconciling these two seemingly contradictory parts of yourself. But the positives more than outweigh any minor negatives. Yeah. And did you do any sort of self-care or anything around the writing process or afterwards to sort of look look after yourself and just give yourself a bit of a break after mining that whole experience and your whole identity for the novel? Not really. I mean, I've always kind of been naturally good about self-care because I think I just have a decent burnout barometer where I know where I'm hitting some kind of like an emotional or physical exhaustion limit. Um, and that's when I'll take a step back and do my things, you know, read a book, watch a movie, hang out with friends. Yeah. So I can't think of any, <laughs> can't think of any really bad moments where I desperately needed and had to shut it all down. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> it, just, yeah. it always felt really natural. That's the thing about self-care, like it should, and it should just be part of our routine. And actually I'm working with another business owner at the moment and she is a life coach and she's working on creating a podcast. And I was reading her scripts today and her first season is all about debunking some of the myths around self-care and talking about how, you know, why it's important and where it started and the fact that it started as a way for like Black Panther movement advocates to like talk about this idea of looking after yourself is just as important as the causes that you're, you know, fighting for and things like that and all these sort of radical roots of self-care. It's not just like bubble baths and face masks and all that sort of stuff um so it's even even asking that question felt a bit silly but it should be something that you just work into your daily life and you know like you're looking after yourself because you can't be an amazing writer and give yourself you know in that story without also looking after yourself as well yeah and I mean hopefully hopefully you get to a place where it feels intuitive right I mean this is what you're saying about building it into your routine and daily life I mean yeah, I, I think we should all know ourselves and trust ourselves well enough to take a break when we need it, you know, and, and not let those breaks devolve into, you know, indulgence where you're just avoiding your responsibilities and all the things we know you should be doing by, you know, self-care, self-care, self-caring up the wazoo. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, not working yourself to death and ignoring that need to kind of like 
let loose and take a break. So it feels, you know, I, I think especially with writing books, it's always felt really natural and intuitive to me. And I think just that's, I, I, I hope that for everybody. How was writing and publishing How It All Blew Up different to your other books? Well, it was never a planned novel um, because when I was when I was over in Italy, I was supposed to be working on a different book. Um, that idea that I had percolating, I decided to kind of give it a real stab that summer, um, but it just wasn't coming out the way that I imagined, the way that I wanted it to come out. And instead, I you know, was spending a lot of time with these people, this group of gay men who seemed so confident in who they were, in what they loved, in, you know, their pop culture references that I, you know, like I'd never watched Drag Race or didn't know who Nina Simone, Joni Mitchell, you know, Judy Garland, all these gay icons really were, um, not like the deep passionate sense. And so, you know, they, they, that was where I derived a lot of my inspiration that summer, not this idea that just wasn't working. And so that's how the book was born, you know, that I knew this is what I felt passionate about. This was what was making a really tangible difference in my life was helping me accept who I was and celebrate all the parts of who I was. Um, and then of course, at the end of the summer when that airport experience happened, you know, I had my vehicle for telling the story and I was mm-hmm. like, all right, fuck it. This is the one I'm writing. And I, you know, shelved the other project. Maybe someday I'll get to it. It's a multi-generational uh, American dream story. And, you know, I would love to get to that someday because it incorporated a lot of like my family history, but, you know, just at the end of that summer, I needed to write what I was most excited about. And that was how it all blew up. Clearly that was the story you had to tell. And I just love it when you have those real life things that happen and suddenly you make all the connections and you're like, oh yeah, I could have a really cool idea here. Like that's, we think of creativity as being some sort of magical thing that actually, I think it was Steve Jobs who said creativity is just connections and it's Mm -hmm. just experiencing life and then seeing these new connections with things. And that's a perfect example of it. Like having an experience in Italy, having an experience in the airport and then thinking, oh, actually, these could work. Yeah. And I want to ask about the real-life character inspirations as well that you mentioned there. Um, are you still in touch with them, and have they read the novel? I am, yeah. They were some of the first people to read the novel, um, and they all reacted kind of exactly how I would have expected them to. Um, so the two main characters, aside from Mir and his family, are these Americans in Italy, uh, Jahan and Neil. Um, and they're based on my friends from that summer, Jahan and Neil. They were the two characters oh, whose names I did not change. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I just assumed that you would have changed them. I, I mean, I changed every other name except for them because they really are the heroes of this story. They are the people who kind of help Amir get to that place of self-acceptance and celebration. But yeah, I mean, once I finished the book and it polished it up a little bit, I shared it with them. Uh, Jahan read it all in one sitting texted me at two in the morning saying that he had finished and he was sobbing and he loved it so much um, and couldn't believe that I had encapsulated a summer in Italy in this, in this piece of art. Um, And then Neil, I mean, (laughs) so Neil was, uh, for lack of better words, he was like the hot bookseller that Amir meets uh, pretty early in the book and then, you know, becomes his tutor. Um, Neil is an attractive, an attractive fellow. Um, But also, I mean, he is a hero of the story in a different sense where, you know, he's very kind and he offers to tutor Amir 
uh, much like the real life meal offered to tutor me in Italian when I was there. Um, and so in classic tutor fashion, uh, he responded with a long email and included a lot of praise at the beginning. He was really excited about how this book was going to help LGBTQ kids um, and that he couldn't believe that I had kind of like um, encapsulated so many of our moments and memories from the summer in Italy. But then I got like a 50 bullet point list of all of the mistakes I had made um, <laughs> oh, in terms of like Italian language. Yeah, it was a compliment sandwich. It was a beautiful, beautiful compliment sandwich. Um, but yeah, I mean, he really like, he he edited, at, he fixed so many mistakes in my Italian and like street names and geography and like little bits about, I mean, there's like a cooking scene. And I think at one point I have like a mirror, a character cracked pepper over this pasta sauce. And he's like, an Italian would never crack pepper into their pasta sauce like that. <laughs> You know, um, or I was using one type of tomatoes and he was like, no, 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 in Rome, they would use a different type of tomatoes. Or, oh, my favorite was that I kept saying, like, I had the Italian folks, whenever they wanted to, like, curse, they would say, like, like shit, like, uh, merda. Um, and he yeah. was like, you know, in Rome specifically, no one really uses merda, the literal translation of shit, when they want to say shit. They're really using cazzo, which means dick, to say shit. <laughs> And he was like, not only is that more accurate, but it's especially appropriate for your gay ass book. It's funny, yeah. <laughs> so it was, I, I just like, I, I, <laughs> I cherish that email to this day because I mean, he really did give me paragraphs of praise while also tearing apart all of the mistakes that I made <laughs> and making them better. I think yeah. that's what you want in a friend. You did yeah. well, but here's where it can be better. <laughs> yeah. That's so, so delightful. And <laughs> just like quickly as well, before we talk about some of the fun pop culture references, I just want to ask, you know, you said that obviously the book came out in September. You've had a few months now. Oh, my God, the, the months, the year is going so quickly. Um, <laughs> to like reflect on this and to have, have you had any feedback from readers um, and have they felt, you know, seen in this novel? Because this has been something I feel like, Caitlin, you probably agree with me. Like, this has been a thread that's been running through a lot of our season yeah. um, where, you know, we talked to Alice Oseman about asexuality and we talked to Caitlin Bayron about her wonderful black queer Cinderella is dead. It was amazing. Mm. Um, and, you know, just hearing that so many people have feel seen by these stories. How do you feel? I've had that feedback and it is the most incredible feeling in the world uh, when people find your book and relate to it and they relate to it i mean there are the queer kids from iranian and middle eastern backgrounds um but there are also so many queer kids from just generally conservative or traditional backgrounds who've also read this book i mean i had uh, a kid dm me who said that this book gave them hope that their like catholic italian parents wouldn't hate them when they one day come out to them you know, and that just, uh, that just, you know, made me so happy that this book could be that, you know, for that kid. Yeah, um, and then also it's, it's, I, I've been seeing, I've been seeing, you know, reviews and notes from people who just loved that this book was about celebrating who you are, um, mm -hmm. and owning your differences and, and, you know, owning it even in the face of, of cultural backlash, or people who might not understand a family that might not understand. I mean, it's 
it's a universal story of, of um, I think, like acceptance and inclusivity, um, even when it's hard. And it goes both ways. You know, I, I don't think, I think there's, and Amir says this himself in more or less words, you know, you want to be understanding, you want to be empathetic, especially when you know that, you know, your parents, your culture might have been raised differently and might just need time to come around. I mean, when you exist in a culture that is rooted in love and that is so loyal and, and tight-knit, um, you have to hope that things will get better. You really have no other choice. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to compromise who you are um, and what you know about yourself, who you know, who you know yourself to be. But I think that's like a universal message that I've heard from some readers just in you know lots of different ways and not necessarily just sexuality and religion and culture. It just comes in a lot of uh, different shapes and sizes. So yeah, I think it's, it's the specific and the universal. Um, that's been the coolest part of, of getting feedback on this book and hearing from readers. Um, but there are some who just you know needed a book like this so badly because they are also queer and come from a religious or a conservative or traditional background. Um, but then also other people who just feel otherwise different or don't fit in a box in this world and need to want to or need to scream about that to people in their life. And I loved that about this book that, you know, we could point to so many other books that are all about, you know, accepting who you are and everything like that. And what I loved about how it all blew up is it's about accepting all of who you are, like all of the different bits that come from your family and culture and friendships and you know, your age, like pop culture and like all of those things that come together to make you, you, which is awesome. And some of those things that make us, us are our favorite, like movies and artists and things like that. And there are so many fun pop culture references in this book. And you have already spoken a bit about how some of your new Italian friends (laughs) introduced you to um, some other gay icons. So did you just want to include all of your favorites? I particularly loved the Mean Girls mention. Yes. Because well, that because is it, very important. <laughs> it is, but it's also generational where I don't, yeah. you know, I, I, I experienced this when I was over there with these new friends that I'd made where I felt like I had certain pop culture icons that I knew inside and out and, you know, praised and spread the gospel of. I mean, I had, you know, yeah, like you, you have like, Ariana Grande, Lady Gaga, um, Britney Spears, Mean Girls. But at the same time, I mean, like, there are gay men who embrace the gay icons in the movies of, like, the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, And when I was over there, it felt almost like an exchange program um, where I was sharing kind of, for lack of better words, like Gen Y, Gen Z pop culture um, and educating these friends of mine on that. And they were educating me on on the icons in the media of the like 60s through the 90s that I maybe had missed yeah I loved that line um where Amir says he thinks Britney Spears is the, where they meet is the cut- I was like, That's so good. <laughs> yeah yeah no Britney Britney is the cutoff you know anything yeah. post Britney Amir knows everything anything pre-Britney Jahan knows and that is yeah. where they meet <laughs> and share their wealth of knowledge <laughs> I love love that. And I think, you know, pop culture things 
are how large masses of people come together and share experiences and feel seen and feel heard. And obviously that happens in a more niche way when you're talking about a particular book. Um, But yeah, I just think pop culture, you know, those sorts of groups and, you know, fans of TV shows, fans of movies. And Caitlin and I know making friends this way, fans of podcasts, you know, it it brings (laughs) people together. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I think I think pop culture. I mean, pop culture is a shortcut to who we are, right? Like yeah, you can exactly. glean a lot about who I am from the music that I listen to, the shows that I watch, the books that I read, um, the podcasts that I listen to, and so yeah. I mean, I I think in a world where we're where we struggle so hard to define ourselves and connect with people it can be such an instant connector right yeah and especially when you're a kid or a young person I mean I remember being a teenager and having friendships that were pretty much entirely rooted in like one pop culture reference that we both loved you know absolutely I think that's the basis of most of my friendships (laughs) (laughs) um so I guess this is more of a serious question again um but you know, let's talk about queer Muslim storytelling sure. in particular. How do you feel about it? Where it is now in the publishing industry? What would you like to see more of in the future? You know, where do we go from here? Because yeah. your story isn't the only one. No, but there's, I mean, there's not enough of it. That's the short answer. And I think until there is more queer Muslim storytelling, there is a lot of weight on stories like mine on stories like uh, Adiba, a friend of mine, uh, you know, she has a book, The Henna Wars. Um, and, you know, that's another beautiful queer Muslim story about a queer Bengali girl. Um, but I mean, there's there's like a love story by Abdi Nazemian that's queer and Iranian. Um, but still, there's really not a lot at that intersection. Um, and I think it's just a fascinating intersection to explore. I mean, to the extent mm-hmm. that First of all, just everyone should get to feel represented. And there are, you know, millions and millions of queer Muslim kids out there around the world who deserve stories of people like them to give them hope that um, things will work out, that they can live a happy, healthy life. But also just, you know, narratively, to the extent that the best stories are desire and obstacle, are a mix of desires and the obstacles that get in the way. I mean, this intersection is just so rich with desire and obstacle um and i mean that's what you see in amir's story he just wants to be himself he wants to love the way that he is programmed to love but he feels like it's not just his culture it's not just his family it's it's the people that he knows better than anyone else in the world that he feels you know he feels like they are getting in the way that they will not understand and so yeah i just think there could always be more stories of diverse marginalized folks because i think that is where the really interesting stories exist the really interesting perspectives exist i think that is also where the greatest obstacles to just be yourself that simplest desire that we have as humans to exist and understand ourselves and be ourselves in this world to to come to some level of of meaning and honesty i think as a marginalized person you face some of the greatest obstacles there 
Um, and so that's just what makes for really, really good storytelling. So I think there's not enough. And even, even if we someday, I mean, we're certainly nowhere close to being at like a percentage level of, 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 of representation with diverse stories and with queer Muslim storytelling specifically. Um, but I want to go beyond that. I want to go beyond even what is proportional to a population, because I just think that these are the most interesting stories right now and the stories that haven't been told for a long time. So we got to make up for it. Yeah, that is true. There are so many stories where it's like, yeah, we've heard that. Like that could take a backseat for now and we will explore these stories that we haven't heard and that haven't been told. And that help us see the world in a different way, that help us see ourselves differently as well. Um, Yeah, always, always more room for that and we need more of it, absolutely. Now, a fun question um to finish up our chat um because i never thought about how the information gets onto wikipedia until reading about (laughs) editing and creating pages um and but we believe that you have also done this and also are a wiki editor so how do you even get into this i didn't even ever think about this before you know it happened by accident um (laughs) i yeah, it's funny. It's um, so for backstory. The backstory is that Amir creates Wikipedia pages. Um, that is a passion of his. And when it you know uh, comes time to run away to Italy, he starts charging people for it, like businesses and entrepreneurs and just little people out there who've knocked on his door before asking for a page, offering him money, um, and now he's accepting their money because he needs to run away and go to Italy. So. Yeah, I've been a casual Wikipedia editor for a while. I'm not like an elite editor, um, but it started maybe about nine or 10 years ago um, during an internship where I was supposed to, it's like a PR internship. And so I had to edit and create pages for some of like the company's clients. And then from there, because I had an account and I had like a certain number of edits that allowed me, you know, to edit and create pages more easily yeah so um, you have like never... some kind of level of access or something i love that there are levels there I'm are just... there are levels yeah and <laughs> yeah, i'm more close to like the most elite level but i have like the level of access where if something is going on in the world and a page like say an election and that election page is locked like i can get it in and edit it in real time oh my god uh, That's yeah so cool. like, i'd not be able to but yeah i mean it became a hobby um and so when i had to like write up a bio for my first book like an author bio i mentioned in there that i edit wikipedia pages for fun and ever since i mentioned that i've been getting these inbound requests from people being like hey can you edit this page can you create that page um and some of them have come with offers of money um and i mentioned earlier that i actually you know this was like a friend of a friend and i genuinely thought this friend of a friend's company needed a wikipedia page um, like I, I thought I'd had all the citations. It was quite noteworthy. And so I was like, sure, I'll make this one. Um, and that person in particular then like forwarded my name along to like all these other people who'd be like, I'll give you $500. I'll give you a thousand dollars. I'll give you like a gift card for my company. If you make us a page, if you just make this little edit and I never accepted the money. Um, but sometimes if I felt like, you know, that's like a legitimate editor, a legitimate page that could be fun to make. Um, I would do it. But I, I remember at one point thinking like this person is, is this person is kind of my Wikipedia pimp, you know, like I'm getting <laughs> enough inbounds through them that like, oh, so-and-so has like, you know, referred me to you and said that you'd be helpful here. I was like, I, I, I kind of have a pimp now, don't I? 
Um, all of which is to say, I had Amir go that extra mile and actually accept the money for his hobby because he is in such a desperate position and needs to, needs to, needs to run away. Yeah. And I mean, he's probably going to make more money than working at like, you know, the supermarket or, you know, a donut shop or something. Oh yeah. I mean, like (laughs) the people who, I mean, I, I'm sure there are like shady businesses out there that like just churn out Wikipedia pages and charge for it. And I imagine they make, I mean, based on what I was getting offered, like $500 to $1,000 a pop. Of course, it's like strictly against the terms of use, the terms of service. Um, but it happens. Yeah. Sure makes it it Although in, you know, in, in the sequel, if there ever is a sequel, his Wiki account would definitely get shut down. I mean, <laughs> he's got to get caught eventually. He would yeah. totally get caught. And I think that's yeah. so funny. And I don't blame people for suddenly hearing about it and go, oh, can you make mine? Because I think no one just knows how the information gets on there. I mean, I, I guess you know that anyone can add information to Wikipedia, but I've never thought about who the people are that actually do that. It, it really yeah. is just anyone. Oh, my God. One time a few years ago, I went to a Wiki meetup in the city this was like a literal underground meetup of wikipedia editors um it is the nerdiest most delightful also very queer um sub community of people i've ever met i mean it really is just anyone but it takes a particular kind of nerd to like get on this website and be like "Ooh, you know what gets me like all hot and excited the democratization of information like that's what i (laughs) want to do in my spare time I mean, I guess I'm calling myself out here a little bit um, because I am that flavor of nerd. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was also just such a bizarrely awesome experience to like be in that basement for that meeting for an hour around other Wikipedia editors. Hello. Can you hey. hear us now? Okay. <laughs> That's, That's okay. All right. That's mean, all right. I guess in the podcast, you can kind of dramatically be like, and this is when Arvin's mic died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and be like, this is why this might sound weird. We've got that. Um, <laughs> the funniest thing about that is just the timing because we pretty much have to wrap up now, and that is my fault because I have to start work. It's nine o'clock in the morning in Sydney, <laughs> even though she's working from home. I'm working from home, so it's not a big deal. But like, I probably should, you know, get on. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that is very funny timing, so but. Cool. <laughs> And yeah, I've I've already been like, please, can you help me edit a Wikipedia page? So uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> see, everyone who hears about it wants one. Um, I have no money, but it is a legitimate. It is a legitimate edit. You have citable sources. That's all that we. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for this. It's been an absolute joy. I mean, it's. 10 p.m. here now and I'm not going to get to sleep for a while because I'm so excited from this interview. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Caitlin and Michelle. It was good to meet you. Yeah. It's been amazing. And thank you for rounding out our season five as well. It's been wonderful. Um, Can you please let everyone know where they can follow you? Yes. Uh, You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. It's at Arvin Amadi. I am not yet on TikTok. Uh, I mean, I am, but I just lurk. I don't actually create content. So don't worry about that. Yeah, we're not either. We're too old yeah. for that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there eventually when the train is well and truly passed, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at betterwordspod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review.